Welcome to Tech Whisperers, the podcast that takes you inside the playbook of the world's best digital leaders. This is a show for digital and business leaders who are passionate about learning from the industry shapers and market makers. Join your host, Dan Roberts, as he unpacks the unique stories, leadership philosophies, and answer the call moments that define and differentiate the best leaders of our day. Our goal is to help you gain an edge and move you beyond your comfort zone so that you are driving more impact and value for your team, your company, and your career. Let's get into the show and hear from another amazing Tech Whisperer. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Dan Roberts, your host of Tech Whispers. And today we're going to talk about a topic that's on everybody's mind, and that's technology talent. So when it comes to technology talent, it's been a seller's market the past couple of years, probably even longer. So questions for us to consider. Will this white hot talent market continue in 2023? What are the trends and themes that CIOs are paying attention to over the next 12 to 18 months? So joining me today to unpack these and other timely topics are two of the top executive recruiters in the CIO CXO retained search space. No doubt you know them both as they are considered top industry thought leaders. First, Martha Heller is the CEO of Heller Search Associates, the author of several books, including Be the Business and The CIO Paradox. I recommend them both. She's a longtime contributing editor to CIO Online, where she publishes amazing thought leadership and the very popular monthly column titled Movers and Shakers. It's one to follow. You also know of her from the Hello Report, which comes out religiously every Thursday morning. And I would recommend that you subscribe today. It's a really amazing resource. Art Hopkins is the global co-leader of the technology officers practice of Russell Reynolds Associates and a board member of Royal Sourcing. He is also a board member for an organization that he and I both are very passionate about, very involved with, the IT Senior Management Forum, or otherwise known as ITSMF. This is the only national organization dedicated exclusively to cultivating executive talent among Black technology leaders. He's also been a, a huge advisor to the Tech Whispers podcast since day one, and I seek his insights awesome. Art, I'm going to start with you. Welcome. And uh, would you kick us off with giving us a perspective on the state of the industry today and specifically around digital transformation? So, Art, take it away. Dan, it's great to be here with you once again and to be joined by Martha. It's uh, it's a great opportunity to chat with you about what we're seeing in the market, in the industry, et cetera, as 22 draws to a close. I can tell you that we are continuing to see a very robust talent market for tech leaders. And when I say tech leaders, I, I mean CIOs and chief tech officers, chief digital officers, et cetera, you know, in spite of the level of economic uncertainty that, that continues to loom and lurk around the corner. We continue to hear everyone talk about this nebulous thing called digital transformation. I still feel like I die inside just a tiny bit every time, and I wonder, what will it mean this time? So I'm going to take liberty to come at the idea of digital transformation a little bit differently. Hopefully, it's a little different. A couple of years ago, we started talking a lot about the convergence that we at Russell Reynolds observed around the senior most technology executive, that there was this convergence of all things infrastructure, apps, and digital, even reaching out into customer interactions. 
and all coalescing around that single point of accountability. Over the past year, what we've seen is a new trend and, and the way that we have given it a moniker to identify what's happening is this idea of tech vantage. That there is now not only this convergence of responsibility under a single top tech exec, but we're seeing that permeate out into the rest of the executive leadership team. And what we are seeing among the best led, best performing companies is what we might in the past have called technology fluency or technology awareness. But concisely, what I would say is TechVantage is two things. It is one, operating from the vantage point of taking full advantage of what technology presents. And then the second piece is the advantage that accrues from fully leveraging it. And so when I said I would take liberty with digital transformation, here's what I would tell you I think digital transformation might mean and perhaps should mean as we go forward. It is the transformation of the corporate culture. It's a transformation of the operational model that is fully informed by everything that digital can put forth, everything that digital can do to impact the business. And that there is a mindset that is shared by leadership, and, and it doesn't stop at leadership, but it needs to start at the leadership level, the transformation of how they think about and operate their business. And what I would tell you is we observe all of the change and upheaval that's happened over the past, you know, we keep saying, well, over the past two years, and then the clock just keeps running. And I don't think it's likely to all of a sudden go into some stable state where we can say, now we are set. I think we're going to continue to see this level of change and upheaval as we go forward. Technology, I believe, will be, and this tech vantage will be, the most impactful factor in how companies respond and flourish as we go forward. I think that's what digital transformation ought to mean going forward. That's really good, Art. And your website has some great insights on this tech vantage vision. Right, including some of the stats, which are pretty pretty daunting, right? What is it? 1.7 trillion spent on digital transformation. And <laughs> what 70% of those have failed. So not a great tracker. I recommend people go to the Russell Reynolds website and look up TechVantage. And thank thanks very much for the plug. I would tell you that I think part of that failure rate is a function of not having the right mindset around what it is that we are supposed to be doing. I think a lot of companies, you know, are they're downloading a bunch of technology, they're meeting with a bunch of the vendors and buying up a bunch of stuff. And then they sit there and they look at it. And, you know, at best, they might be plugging it in and logging on, and then they stare at it and wonder, where do we go from here? As opposed to asking ourselves, how can we fully capitalize on everything that technology makes available to us to better this business? Yeah. It's really good. Martha Heller, welcome to you. And, you know, we all know your writings, you're interacting with CIOs, CXOs every day. You're also a big history buff, which, which I think gives you an interesting perspective on the future too. So build on what Art just shared about the state of the industry and this culture transformation. Sure thing. Thanks so much, Dan and Art. It's great to be here. You know, when I was prepping for this, I thought about the vantage point of what companies are looking for in their CIOs, because like art, we spend a lot of time with hiring authorities and with candidates trying to make meaningful matches between the two. And what 
CEOs and COOs and all the rest of the hiring authorities are looking for primarily are three things. Now, they want project execution and strategic thinking and relationships and all those wonderful attributes that make their way into all of those position descriptions. But I've sort of bucketed them, these requirements into three areas. The first is digital. And Art, like you, I cringe a little with digital. When something means everything, does it mean anything? So I kind of broke digital down into three buckets from the way our clients are perceiving it. The first concept of digital, which which I actually hear about most often, is actually automation. It's putting in SAP S4 HANA. It's really just deploying technologies, but in many CEOs' minds, that is digital. The second area, which is probably the biggest bucket out there, is customer technologies, right? It's creating a seamless experience among your customers. And then the third, which is the most impactful and really dovetails with what Art mentioned, is actually platform model transformation. It's taking a business. So let's take Toyota Financial Services, for example. They're captive finance for Toyota customers and dealers for a million years. Well, not anymore. Now what they're doing, a CIO came in, Vipin Gupta, and he drove a transformation to create in Toyota Financial Services a mobility finance as a service platform, and their first customer was Mazda. But what I would say is when CEOs say they're looking for digital transformation from their CIO, they're not always really thinking about full-scale platform model transformation, the actual transformation, not of how we do business, but of the business that we're in. They're not usually hiring for that. It's the CIOs who get in there, look around and drive that transformation. That's usually where the energy comes from for that kind of transformation. So the first piece is digital. The second, of course, is data. And while we have so many CIOs talking about all the great feats of strength with data that they're performing in their organizations, Really, I could recount a conversation I had with a CEO recently where he had said, well, data, we want somebody to turn data into value here. And I said, well, what kind of data are you talking about? And he said, I'll take anything I can get. So that's (laughs) the reality of where we are with data. Many companies have not really even defined standards and governance around data, let alone create data democratization, which really is the future. And then the third piece I'd bring up that companies are looking for in their CIOs is IT business partnership. And the model there is less about embedded IT and teaching IT leaders to understand the business, have the business acumen. It's really a wholesale redesign, back to your comment about culture art, into a product or capabilities management structure where it's not really about getting IT to talk to the business. It's creating a new organizational model that has IT. It's in a way decreasing the difference between IT and the business because in this era of really distributed technology leadership out out of IT and into all of the business functions, 
We all need to be business people. We all need to be technologists. We all need to be data scientists. We have to redraw those organizational lines in order to make that happen. Coaching and culture and universities and all of this can get you there. But to really get you to the point of true digital business, it is really about redesigning the operating model of how teams work together. So those three areas, digital, data, and IT business partnership, those are the areas I'm seeing companies focus on when they're thinking about digital transformation and, and the role the CIO will play. Well, guys, we're just a few minutes in. I've already got a page of notes, so I'm sure our audience is just eating this up. And Martha, great quote, when something means everything doesn't mean anything. Uh, you made me think of uh, boarding an airplane, you know, when everyone's special, is anyone special? You know, exactly. if you own the card and you're, uh, you know, you're six foot seven and you're, you know, it's like, it's just crazy. Coming back to you, Martha, you know, one of the things I like to do is pull in questions from our, our experts in the field and our CIOs, our practitioners. And Larry Quinlan, good friend of arts and mine, has this amazing question. He's a legend. He was Deloitte CIO. He's now on numerous boards. We had him on the podcast recently, go listen to Larry Quinlan. But here's his question, and I'd love for you to tackle it, Martha. He says, it appears that the role of a modern CIO varies sharply from the recent past. What are the key changes that must be implemented in the role? So I know you've got a point of view around this, the CIO changing role. And the reason why I rebranded, what, you know, this used to be called CIO Whispers. I had to rebrand it to Tech Whispers, right? So I'll let you take it, Martha. Sure. So, I mean, every time I interview a CIO, I ask them to define their role. What is the impact they're having? What is the role all about? Lately, what I'm hearing most often is chief value officer. Once you're able to get out of the business of delivering technology onto business users who consume it, and you create a structure of product management, a structure of democratization of data, democratization of IT. So you're not always responding to requests. You're creating an environment where your business users can help themselves, whether it's RPI, RPA, whether it's data visualization, whatever it is. Well, then what are you going to do with your time? It's consulting to each area of the business to say, what can technology do for this part of the business and making sure the governance is there so that everybody isn't reinventing the wheel all over the place. You know, I did an interview with Bonnie Smith, who was the CIO of Lear Corporation until she moved to be the CIO of Tech Data. And what she had done is created something she called SOS, which was, I don't remember what the acronym was now, to be honest, but it was really an RPA self-service model. So what she had is she had 270 plants around the world and they each kept doing their own RPA. And so she's looking around and I love the way she put it. She said they were innocently creating shadow IT. So what she did was she put in a whole model, which took a long time. It took a lot of vendor uh, negotiation because it was a different kind of role for vendors. She had RPA tools and training installed in each one of the plants, 270 plants. 
And then IT's role was to provide the guardrails and the governance and to make sure that each RPA solution developed was checked in to almost a repository or clearinghouse so that we wouldn't be reinventing the wheel. So that if a plant in Asia Pac was creating something, she could say, you know, the folks in Germany have already done that. Why don't you all get together and talk about it? And at the end of it, at the end of that whole interview, I realized, wow, she's not delivering technology. She's creating an opportunity for the business to have their own technology, which frees her up and her team to really be strategic internal technology consultants. So that is one changing role to Larry's question. But another one that I would bring up is Rhonda Gass at Stanley Black and Decker. When I asked her this question, she talked about her role as chief risk officer. Because speaking of digital transformation, at Stanley Black and Decker, they've got IoT in their products. They're collecting customer information all over the place. Every time you create an IoT opportunity in a business unit, you create a security issue or a potential for a security issue. There's risk every time you sort of open the door to external partners and customers. So now she's seeing her role again, not as no one talks about the role anymore as deploying technology or running an IT organization. It's about creating in the business a capability around governance, around risk, around value. And the last one I'll I'll bring up is just to, you mentioned my interest in history, just going back to the CIO role. When it first came out, it was really almost, you know, an accidental CIO where, oops, I wrote a piece of software to automate a process. I'm the MIS director, and then I'm CIO in about 1987 was our first CIO. And then after that, when it became more about ERP, it was really about, it was de- technology deployment less about software engineering and more about business process change and large program management. Along comes .com. Now we're thinking more about business models. We're thinking about the customer. Here we are in the age of data. As much as digital, we're in the age of data. Now CIOs need to be all about the customer. They need to be all about internal processes. But they also need to be strong architects, because a flexible, adaptable, microservices, modular, API-oriented architecture, whether CEOs know this or not, is key to everything else that we've been talking about. So ironically, to Larry's question, it was at first CIOs needed to be technical. Then they needed to be business-oriented. Then they needed to be customer-oriented. Guess what? Now they need to be all of that, but that technical capability has come right around again. And so I would say CIOs actually, I wouldn't say they need to be engineers. They have to have an engineering mindset and they do need to understand architectural issues. Interesting. Yeah. No pressure out there, you know, in the, uh, in the hinterlands. Uh, it's a tough job. But it is, you know, George Westerman, MIT has got that great quote, uh, never been a better time to be a great CIO, nor a worse time to be an average one. Exactly. uh, That seems always to be true. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) In your introduction, you talked about, you you redefined digital transformation. You talk about it's more about corporate culture transformation. And no surprises, a lot of the CIO questions I got were related to culture. 
And uh, I'd like to, to run the first one by who came from a good friend, uh, Michael Smith, CEO from SD Lauder. We know him from, you know, from Mylan, from Nike, some great companies. Michael was just awarded the CIO of the Year Orby Award, the Leadership Award in New York, which is a very prestigious award. So congratulations on that. But his question, you know, at SD Lauder Corporation, we built a culture of joy in IT, which allows us to create camaraderie and a positive morale amongst our team, especially back in the office. Why is culture more important than ever for candidates than they when they return to the office, often with a new team? Building off of what Martha said and going right into your question, here's a way that you might think about the job of a CIO going forward, or what I would refer to as the top tech exec, because the title may or may not be CIO. I would say it would warm my heart if Martha asked her question of describe your job to me, and someone's response was something to the effect of, I am the business executive who is entrusted with ensuring that we optimize the business value of all things tech and digital. And so, first of all, do you even think of yourself as a business executive? And and not to turn this into a lot of word games, but I'm not sure that everyone at the C-level or at the exec level really sees himself or herself as a business executive. And then do you recognize that you have been entrusted with this? You don't own the technology, but you're the steward, the, the custodian of all of this stuff that has been placed in your care and that your job, one of your top priorities is to optimize the business value. I think you could have an interesting conversation about the difference between maximizing and optimizing because maximizing might say, you know, the world ends as far as I'm concerned on December 31st. And so we're just going to ring out every penny. We're cutting off all updates and upgrades, et cetera. That's maximizing. It might look like that. Optimizing would not. Maximizing it might mean grinding your team into dust to get some arbitrary deadline met. Optimizing would not, but all in the context of business value. And again, I would say, if you don't understand the currency of exchange of the organization where you say you were a business executive, again, we've got we've got a big misalignment. So if, if I were to build on what Martha was saying and kind of start with that as, as one point on the horizon and then take your question about joy, I, I wouldn't dare try to compete with Martha as a historian, but I will toss out that in 1989, Ray Oldenburg wrote a book that I refer to frequently, and it's called The Good Great Place. And the kernel from this book that I constantly go back to is the idea of what's called third place. And the thesis that human beings need a third place. Home is first place, work is second place. And then there's this other place that you might think of, again, dating myself, as the cheers bar. It's the place that you could go to. It's kind of this neutral ground that is neither home nor work. You go there on your own terms. You know, we often talk about bringing your whole self to work, but I often follow up by saying, as you self-identify. Think you're in control. When you go to work, you decide how much of myself do I want to bear to everyone around me? How much of my personal life and interests, et cetera? That's what the cheers bar was. And then COVID happened. And COVID happened after this insurgence of, of technology. And, and you know, we can have social connections online and Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. And so we had technology providing us this playground for getting to know one another. We 
had COVID and so we couldn't go out to the Cheers bar. And now I think we're in the midst of a reboot. And so I love the fact that companies are, whether they're articulating it and, and connecting these dots in, in the same way that Ray Oldenburg did, I love the fact that companies are recognizing that there are some human needs or at the very least wants that we should be addressing in the workplace. And then, you know, there's this idea of joy as, as part of the foundation of culture. It's interesting that he says joy and not happiness. I, I would say you might think of joy as something that emanates from within and is enduring and emanating out and resilient, et cetera. Happiness, something perhaps that is just prompted by external stimuli. You know, there's something good that happens and then you say, I'm happy. There's something bad that happens and say, I'm unhappy. But if you've got kind of this abiding sense of joy, it remains with you in spite of those, those fluctuations. So, you know, what's the point? I think that there is this call to action for all business executives, all leaders, irrespective of, you know, whether there's an acronym at the beginning or end of your title, take up the leadership mantle and think about what are the human priorities, whether you call them needs or wants that people have, how do you create a culture or context where those things are nurtured? And are you creating this among people and sending them out and saying, hey, you need to be a standard bearer of our corporate culture, our corporate values, et cetera? Uh, I think that companies that figure out how to work in a hybrid mode where they recognize some people just don't ever want to come back on site and that there are other people who are just clamoring for the opportunity to get back into the break room and shake hands with people and face-to-face -face interactions over the water cooler, et cetera. I think the, the future is brightest for the companies who figure out how to operate in that hybrid mode. I would say that, you know, generationally, there are probably a lot of people who will say, I just can't wait until we go back to the days when we were all together. And you know, those days aren't really coming back. It's not happening. And, you know, my admonition to them would be, it would be wonderful if we go back to your happy place, but you have a responsibility to create a happy place for people who don't want to sit in the break room or who don't want to be crowded in a, a room with a five person capacity, but they've got 15 other people in there with them. But Taking this, this core idea that Michael articulated around joy, I, I think is invaluable as we think about what the return to work is going to look like going forward. And I'll tell you, after COVID is a distant memory, I don't think that we will regret if we have woven this importance of joy into the way that we think about our corporate culture. Yeah, yeah, powerful. The whole idea of the human priorities, great, you know, great reminder and Christy Grinnell, CIO of DXC, you know, one of the greats out there. In fact, her, truth be told, I haven't shared this publicly, but Christy's podcast that we did together is just off the charts. Like, it's just the number one podcast. We talked about leading with heart, but heart be an acronym. Heart stands for humility. The CEO said they are leading different. Humility, empathy, adaptability, resiliency, transparency, all those attributes. Her question, I'd love to have you take, Mark, Martha, in terms of in this tight IT market, we can't always win on compensation. They pay very well, but you know we can't win on compensation. We always hear culture is king. I agree, but you can't change overnight. What can you do in the meantime to convince resources to stay and enjoy the ride? And should you? 
So I love to hear this question and I love to hear it from Christy because I'm just going to take a quick aside. I did an interview with Chris Drumgool, who was the CIO at DXC. <clears throat> and then his boss, the CEO, said to him, you know, Chris, there is nothing we are going to do operationally in this business for the next decade that does not lead with technology. You know the business and you know the technology. You are the perfect profile for a COO. And by the way, back to Larry's question, which was more about, you know, what are the, you know, what's the changing role of the CIO? Well, the changing career of the CIO is increasingly to take on COO roles, given the comment by the CEO of DXC. And so Chris gets into the role and he says, well, I'm going to stay CIO too, because I know that so well, I don't want to create too much change. So he said that to a board member. And if I have this right, the board member said to him, Chris, don't be an idiot or something <laughs> like <laughs> something fairly direct like that. And so he said, so I needed to go hire a first rate CIO. And of course, that resulted in Christie. But at any rate, you know, just I, I was out to breakfast several weeks ago with some real up and coming IT leaders. I was very, very impressed with them. And they'd each been with their companies for some time and had no intention of leaving. And I asked them, I said, why? What is what's the what is that company doing to retain you so successfully? And they said several years ago, <clears throat> they wrote down their values. They came up with new values and they published them. And then in every major meeting, they have somebody, it could be the most junior person or the most senior person, talk about some way that they're living those values. It could be at work, it could be at home, it could be at the cheers bar or what have you, but it's them living their values. And, you know, we can all write our values down and it could be a nice ac acumen and we can put it on a poster somewhere in, in an, you know, in a closet somewhere. But it is companies that take their values, put them front and center, and connect the work they do and the lives they live to those values. So yes, culture can take a long time to change. But once you've identified what your cultural attributes are, bringing them to life regularly can be a pretty quick way to indicate to your resources that you take your values seriously. So that's one thing I think you can do if it's taking a long time to change the culture. Another is connecting people to the mission. You know, I, you know, what I believe has happened with our younger generations during what has been a pretty wild ride over the last couple of years, COVID being one major element of that, but there are other factors as well, is having meaning in their lives. They don't want to go to a job and just plug in a widget. They want to have meaning in their lives. And so connecting people to the mission, to the vision. Now, it's easier to do that if you're in a nonprofit or if you're in healthcare. But if you're in a for-profit company that's selling products, creating a connection to the mission can be more challenging. So I'll just bring up a couple of ideas. And I'm going to be a little bit of a broken record because I see this product management model. And we all know what that is, right? That's a cross-functional team not delivering a technology, but creating a capability or creating an outcome. And what that does is on a day-to-day -day basis for engineers, for de developers, for DBAs, it's having them on a team working with 
people from marketing, people from product, people from R&D. That product management model, no, not only do I believe it's the right way to create business IT integration, it's also a way to connect people on a daily basis to colleagues way outside of their own uh, IT organization. I'll tell you a, a quick story. Mark Carlson, CIO of Lando Lakes, was finding that IT folks would say, oh, we delivered the project, done with that, let's move on not really caring or being invested in the outcome of the product that they delivered. So when he put in a product management model, he changed the compensation. He said, you're going to be bonused on delivering on time and on budget, but that's only going to be half of your bonus. The other half is going to be in one year from now, whether or not that product is achieving the right business outcomes. Suddenly, You've got IT folks caring deeply about the impact of the product in the environment or in the market, and it became a retention device. Because once you've got some of those compensation elements adding up like stair steps in year two and year three and year four, you're finding you've created your own long-term incentive plan right inside your own IT organization. What it also does is it gives a new leadership. You know, I always find leadership in IT to be such an interesting challenge because IT itself is such a complicated discipline. There's infrastructure and data and security. And every time you turn around, there's a new architectural element. So it's a very challenging, you know, vocation. So it can take people a while to also look about and say, oh, leadership, people. Yeah, I got to be on top of that too. So what the product management model does, it allows for that product leadership role. That product leader or product manager can come out of the business. It can come out of IT. So it creates a new leadership opportunity. And the last thing that I would say is new technologies. What IT, up-and-coming IT people want is to work on the latest and greatest. So, you know, I've, I spoke to a, a CIO of a um, big technology distribution business, and he was retiring. And so we were kicking off his CIO search. And I said, well, let's talk about your cloud journey. And it's like, he didn't necessarily say cloud schmoud, but it was, you know, pretty close to that. We get, because we're in distribution, we get such a deep discount on our hardware. The cost efficiency isn't there for us in cloud. But what are you missing? It's not just about cost. It's about a lot more than that. Well, of course, it's about a flexible platform and all of that. It's also about getting your team the opportunity to work on new technologies. So it seems counterintuitive that you would say, well, we invest in new technologies for a business outcome. That's the only reason, not technology for technology's sake. Today is retaining resources a positive business outcome? Sure it is. So investing in some new pilot projects, some new cool technologies, are you worried about the ROI two seconds down the road? No. Are you giving your team an opportunity to say, I'm working on some cool stuff at my company? Yes. So I would say thinking through your your technology innovation strategy with retention in mind is something a CIO can do right away. It's a big deal. Yeah. And You know, one of the techniques I've learned from you over the years, Martha, is I've seen you moderate uh, panels and so forth. I think you call it the lightning round. So I want to I want to throw some rapid fire questions at you and Art. I'll start with you, Art. I want to kind of pivot us to 
kind of tech talent in 2023, you know, what you see coming, you know, we've got big tech has been winning the day in the last few years. They've been, been just getting hordes of great talent, paying stupid money in a lot of cases. Uh, now, now we see them laying off tens of thousands. If I'm an incumbent CIO today, what does this mean to me? What's that look like to me? Look, I think that there is perhaps, and I'm not certain that we are there yet, but there is perhaps a moment where there will be some talent in the market who would be interested in making a move, you know, away from some of the fast moving, highly speculative tech juggernauts into something that's a little bit more predictable, stable, arguably less sexy. You may find people who are ready to move back into a corporate environment. You know, they they had a turn at the wheel for something that was speculative, and maybe the speculation didn't quite work out as, as hoped. I want to be careful, though, in saying I don't get the sense that we are quite there at that moment just yet. I think that there is still enough demand for talent that even if people find themselves in a tenuous situation or even on the outs at their current employer, I don't think that the you know, this winter has set in long enough that people are saying, I'll just take any job, you know, just hire me, et cetera. And even if they did, I, I would urge people just to be cautious about that, because it may be that folks do that kind of as a layover on their way to whatever is next in their own autobiography. I think it's really important to understand what people's motivations are. And whenever I interview candidates, you know, Martha and I each have our own go-to questions. One of the things that I always ask people is, what is the next chapter of your autobiography? And you got to quit treating your career like a biography. You're in control of the narrative. Tell me what the story is. And sometimes I have to remind them, I don't want you to tell me the story as it aligns to the opportunity that I called you about. So, okay, I heard what you said that time. Now tell me the story without this position spec in front of you. and then. What, what sometimes people miss is I'm listening for whether the story you just told me of the chapter, remember, it's not a brand new story. It's just the next chapter. Does it even pair up to all of the chapters that have preceded it? So, you know, in the case of someone who has changed jobs every two years, just so that they could get a higher title, you tell me, oh, I don't care about title now. I realize that I want to make the world a better place. Like, really? You've been doing this for 30 years and now all of a sudden you want to make the world? It's possible. But I'm just looking for some way to reconcile the next chapter to everything that has led up to that point. Net-net, I think that you may find some really good talent in the market. I think if you are at a company that is performing at a level where you can make smart hiring decisions, it's an interesting market to start looking at, at talent. If you are talent in the market, I, you know I, I don't think that it's doom and gloom, but I do think that there is some uncertainty, some tentativeness among companies about running out there and doing a bunch of hiring at this moment. You know, Martha, for those on the flip side of that equation, those who've been laid off, Ralph Laura, always the one willing to ask the hard question, which is, what do you do when you get fired? Ralph, you know, he's like, most everyone has been let go for at least one job. Perhaps it was a business downturn. Perhaps it was a major project gone wrong or just a bad chemistry with, a, with you and a boss. Just get get your perspective on folks who are facing that situation. Is the world over? I mean, are they done? Are they, you know, well, how, how do you think about that? How do you advise people? I mean, really, all of this is context, right? It depends on what does the rest of your resume look like? If you've moved every two years and th three out of three of those were, were you got fired, 
you know, you have a challenge and you might want to do some real introspection and understand what's going on and why are you being fired so often. But I would say, you know, we all have career blips that we look at and we say, you know, maybe that wasn't the right move. My advice is to be very transparent about it, be very forthcoming, but be short about it. You don't need to go on and on. Well, it wasn't really fair because I came in and they told me you don't need to, you know, have a soliloquy on the injustices of the company that wronged you, right? I would make it short and sweet. I would put it on your resume. Now, be honest, if it was a two-month stint, you don't always have to put it on your resume. But if it was something significant, significantly longer than that, and you were fired, the way I would do it, I would say right to the executive recruiter or to the corporate recruiter, yeah, I was let go. It really wasn't a cultural fit, but I have some terrific references from the company and then move on. And if what the recruiter wants to do is drill down and ask you questions, let them ask you those questions. But I would be short and sweet about it. I wouldn't be make an apology for it. I think when in doubt, just go for the truth short and sweet, but again, mention the good relationships and the references that will support you from the company that you left. Yeah. Yeah. If I could add to that, if you got fired, own it. Don't hem and haw around it. Don't kind of, oh, is this mutual blob? No, if you got fired, say, listen, I got fired. And maybe you don't want to say fired. You want to say, let me go. But I would say, number one, own it. Number two, be ready with what you learned from that. If nothing else, I'll take Martha's example, got in there, discovered it wasn't a cultural fit and it came to an abrupt end when they let me go. And so as you and I have this conversation about this new opportunity, I just want to let you know, I'm really focused on culture fit and making sure that it aligns well, et cetera. We talked a a lot about culture and values through this conversation and, and at some points using them synonymously. I challenge clients to make a clear distinction between culture and values. And here's a really easy way to start that thought process. A lot of people are saying it's time to transform our culture. And we go, yeah, yeah, that's a good thing. But not many people think we should transform our values. I think your values should be pretty enduring. And if I'm not mistaken, it was Harvard Business Review who did an article a couple decades ago, and they they challenged people on what their core values really are. And, and you know, they said it's not what the HR department had you post on the wall. Your values are the things that you would adhere to, even if the market punishes you for doing so. That's an interesting way to think about what your real your real values are. And I would say when you're interviewing candidates, you ought not be interviewing based on culture fit rather on values fit, especially if you're trying to change your culture. And and as you're thinking about what the future may bring, do you really want to be locked into this forever archetype of what a cultural fit is? Probably not, but you do probably, unless you're in a really strange scenario, you do probably want to stick with the values that you've maintained throughout. And then the last thing I'll say, as far as if it was a really, really short stint, I can tell you that I have seen situations firsthand where someone had a very short stint, elected not to put it onto their resume, and that blew up in their face because it was known that they were employed for a very brief period of time, and it was perceived that you know it was they were trying to sweep it under the rug. So I would say be be thoughtful about how you address that. I'm, I'm not saying I disagree with Martha. I'm just saying proceed with caution in a situation like that. Agreed. And and what I would also say to Art's point is, 
You know, what I hear all the time, it was mutual. It was mutual. The CEO and I made a, CEO and I made a decision. On many searches, recruiters will do some little back-channel referencing and will go check in on what really transpired. You would be better off coming forward and saying, I was let go or I was fired. Because if you portray it as mutual and it was not, which it usually isn't, then you then you are disingenuous. You always want your teenagers to think you're always going to find out. So just just come <laughs> clean, right? Come clean. <laughs> All exactly. right, I'm gonna, I want to wrap us up here on a strong note and a fun note. I want to get one sentence-ish answers on some interesting topics, I think, on people's minds, especially when it comes to your profession. So the first one, and I'll start with you, Art, pet peeve when it comes to candidates. It's the thing we just talked about. Someone who was fired, who tries to convince us that it was mutual or it was of my own volition, et cetera. That, that's a big pet peeve. But maybe a second one, if I can indulge, if you'll indulge me, is the folks who are insistent on, I've got to report to the CEO. And I know that that's important, but there are also situations where I think people are overly distracted by who it reports to and not putting that in the broader context of all of the other things that should be important as well. I think it would be ideal if you know the top tech exec reports to the CEO, not every company, that's not necessarily the right arrangement for every company, for every CEO or every CIO. Uh, so folks who get a little bit over wrapped around the axle on that one, that, that becomes a bit exhausting. Yeah. How about you, Martha? Pet, pet peeve with candidates. Arrogance. Arrogance. And how, how long does it take you to see arrogance? Early. I can see it early. Yeah. Once I see that they're arrogant, it's they're probably not going to move forward. Yeah. Humility yeah. is an important leadership trait. Absolutely. Here's a question for you both. So what's a reputation, a brand that you don't want to have with executive recruiters? Because I get calls all the time. Hey, how do I connect with these guys? They're hard to, they're hard to engage. They're hard to, you know, but what's the reputation you don't want to have, Art, in your, with people in your space? Specifically about reputation or about how to connect with the folks in search? I would say, what's the reputation that I don't want to have as a as a candidate? Dan, as far as what you want to avoid as your brand or reputation in the market, it's a lack of integrity. And I know that may sound like a basic fundamental, but if I didn't think that it needed to be heard, I wouldn't have said it. Thank you. Yeah. Martha? I guess the word I'd use is cagey. Being cagey, not being forthcoming. When you have other opportunities, when you have compensation expectations, but holding so much to the vest that you're not allowing the recruiter to do their job. And the other I would say is these days, somebody who has a command and control leadership style will likely not be acceptable to your clients across the board. Yep. That old traditional style of leadership is certainly a rearview mirror. And that goes back to those those back to those 1900s you guys referred to. And I know you weren't around then professionally. You're just looking at reruns of, of Cheers art. But, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. And Martha is a real student of history. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Last question. I want to take a big risk here, especially with you two. And I'm going to give okay. you complete, like, just give it up to you. So what's the wrong question people are asking right now around talent, search, whatever, that you hear that kind of, you, and, and, but what's the right question? I know it's kind of a nebulous one, but all right, what do you think? What's the wrong question? What's the right question? 
again, I'll go back to, you know, does this report to the CEO? I think sometimes we, we waste way too many cycles on that. I think the right kind of question is around the priorities for the business. So what are the big business imperatives that you face and that you would look to me to address in six, nine, 12 months? I think those are the kinds of questions, especially if you're interviewing with the CEO, those are the things that are top of mind for CEOs. Got it. Got it. Martha, wrong question, right question. I'm going to be uh, do what always drives me crazy, Dan, when I'm moderating a panel, but I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to answer a different question. All right. You, you, at least you're transparent. <laughs> to, to a fault, which is what's the wrong answer? The question that I always ask is, why is this role of interest to you? Why potentially of interest? And when I hear, well, me, me, my, my, what's happening here in my organization, I'm ready for something new. The culture has changed here. I'm, you know, all these reasons. There's two parts to every every move. One is pain aversion. I'm done here. And one is pleasure seeking. I want to go do that job, sort of the push and the pull. It's candidates who focus too much on the push and not enough on the pull. The beginning of, you know, the answer to that question when you're on an interview with the CEO or whomever should be, this is why I'm excited about your company, about this opportunity and all that I can bring. Oh, and by the way, I don't trust the leadership or, or and by the way, things aren't good here. Whatever the reason is, that should be the last part of it, not the first part of it. And what's amazing to me is every single interview prep I've ever done with big CIOs. And I say to them, when they ask you, what's your interest level and why? They almost always lead with me, me, my, my, where I am currently in my career. It is amazing to me how much a revelation it is to our candidate population that they should actually, you know, the, that they should be talking about the, the the new company. When my husband proposed to me 26 years ago, and I said, why me? And he said, because you're a girl and you live close. I probably would have given him a different answer. <laughs> so, you know, it's not thinking about, well, oh, I really like the location or whatever it is. The up, when you're thrown a softball, like, why are you interested? That is an opportunity to show how much you know about the business and how much you can bring. Mm. So to squander that opportunity is, is a pet peeve for me. Yeah, yeah, and really Dan, good. If I can add on to what Martha said, my question about tell me about your autobiography is an enticement for a narcissist to just go off the deep end. Wow. <laughs> Wow. But that's, you know, tell me about your autobiography doesn't mean that it's only a story that you are in. Hopefully, if you're a good leader, you recognize that everyone on my team has their own autobiography. And so you might think about what your role is in enabling their autobiography to play out as they had envisioned it. And you might look at their situation and say, you know what, I can't help you what you want to do, you know. You are quite insistent that you want to be in a market-facing PNL leader role, and, and I, I don't have a way to get you there. And perhaps the impact I can have in your autobiography is to steer you in a different direction. But I totally agree with what Martha said. The, the person who begins every response or every sentence with the word I, that's a, that's a big red flag. And I can tell you, Dan, Martha, correct me if, if you can think of a different data point. 
I cannot think of a single client who has said that we're looking for someone who can really drive this command and control culture that we have. Servant leadership. Yeah. Yeah. It's turned yeah. on its head. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. No, yeah. that's good. Write your own story, write your own narrative, right? It's good. Good art. Last question for you. And this is something on the minds of people out there. How do you want CIOs or candidates to engage with you would be one question or a sister question would be, why should they answer your call even if they're not looking? So I'll let you go first. Maybe take one of those and Martha, take, take, take the other or just whichever one you want to go with. Yeah, the, the first one, you know, how best to engage is tough. I think, um, you know, this is a business that is 100% relational. It's also 100% transactional. And, and so kind of balancing those two competing forces is tricky. What I, if I could offer just a general bit of guidance, I would suggest to folks, the time to meet folks like Martha and myself is not when you need to find a job. It's like the exact opposite. And so this may seem crazy, but if you've just landed your new gig, you know, settle in for a little while, but then just say to folks, hey, I want to make sure I'm on your radar. I love my new job. I'm absolutely not looking, but just want to be on your radar for the future. And if there's anyone in my network that I can introduce you to, happy to help. Or maybe you just emphasize that it's the happy to introduce folks in my network. I'm not in the market, et cetera, et cetera. But waiting until the moment where you just you know, you're walking out of HR with a cardboard box. It's just not the right time. And, you know, that's not you at your best. That's not you at your mountaintop experience, et cetera. So the, that's that's the best I've got in terms of how best to connect. Other than your second question, which is why in the world should you respond even if you're not looking? Because I think generally folks benefit from having relationships in the retained search, executive search world. And if that's not good enough reason, if at some point you hope to be on a board, then it's good to have those connections made, again, well in advance of the time when you want to make that move. And I, I think, Art, that makes excellent sense. And, you know, what I would add to that is, um, and I love uh, that it's 100% relationships and 100% transactional. I hadn't heard that before, and I really like that a lot. She, she's going to use that now. I, am, I don't know how mean. yet. Maybe maybe a tattoo. I'm not sure. I'll do something <laughs> with it. But um, but but really, it's um, referrals. So when a client says, this is a, a CIO I've worked with in the past, I'd love for you to talk to him. I'll talk to him. When a candidate I've recently placed says, hey, here's somebody I think you should talk to, I'll talk to him. So my advice is every time one of your CIO friends gets placed, find out who the recruiter is ask for a referral. We cannot talk to every single person who sends us the resume or, you know, even if we try to, we wouldn't ever sleep. So um, the referrals, uh, I think, is a great way to get the attention and also understand, you know, Art and I have teams. So very often when I see somebody come through and I think it's a quality resume, I'll ask somebody on my team to talk to them. So it doesn't really matter because you're now you're a part of our database. Now you're a part of the, of the intelligence of our firm. So yep. I wouldn't be too picky about who you talk to. You want to have uh, exposure to the firm. Yep, totally agree. Yeah. Well, Martha Heller, Art Hopkins, uh, amazing discussion. I knew it would be. Uh, you've helped our audience so much here. Always uh you're always uh, willing to share the hard the hard news sometimes that people need to hear, the tough love, which I appreciate, but always amazing thought leadership. So I appreciate you both. Wish you both incredible success this year. 
and uh, go uh, go forth and do can you do great great things out there. Appreciate you. Developing a robust pipeline of future-ready IT leaders who know how to show up and engage differently is paramount to success today. If you would like to learn more about the Tech LX Leadership Development Program that Dan talks about in the podcast, we invite you to visit techwhisperers.net. Equip your workforce with a new mindset and skill set needed to maximize impact, increase engagement, and build a world-class talent magnet brand. You've been listening to Tech Whispers, inside the playbook of the best digital leaders, a Woolet and Associates podcast. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show as this helps us connect the world's best digital leaders with those who aspire to learn, grow, and thrive in this amazing profession. Thanks for listening. Until next time.